Come into the circle of love and justice. Come into the community of mercy, holiness, and health. Come, and you shall know peace and joy. Welcome, friends and members, to the podcast service of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. Our church has gathered since 1870 and has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. And so, whoever you are, regardless of where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. I'm grateful this morning to be joined by Donika Kozlovich and Margaret Jurs. You're welcome to follow along with the order of service and sing with us wherever you are. Please join me in our congregation's chalice lighting now. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Our opening hymn is Break Not the Circle. Please join me in a spirit of prayer and silent meditation. Source of grace and light, an ending sea of love and blessing, we have been filled with the miracle of living with every breath and every heartbeat. We give thanks for the blood that fills our veins, for the invisible work of the cells in our bodies, for the energy that pulses from atom to atom, for the power that keeps planets and stars moving along their courses. We give thanks for the ancient stories that tell us of steadfast love, 
the women and men of every time and place who fish for the meaning of your call and the deep ocean of their daily living. And we give thanks for the great source of all life who through generations turned everyday people, people like us, into prophets and sages, disciples who tell the good news. In the silent depth of our hearts and in the joyful sounding of our words, we give thanks for breathing in and breathing out. Please join me in a period of silent meditation now. Amen. This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 17, beginning in the seventh verse. St. Paul writes, If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I do not love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Love puts up with anything, 
trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Therein ends our reading. I think it's fair to say a lot of people have short attention spans. This isn't entirely our fault. They've been shaped for decades by 30-second commercials, TV dramas that wrap up all the problems in 20 minutes, and social media that's addictive. 
designed to keep us scrolling, luring us out of the present and into the next thing, even before we have time to think about where we've been or where we're going. The Buddhist teacher Pima Chodron says the modern person is obsessed with not wanting to be present. She says we're like moths, addicted to a flickering flame, unaware that every time we dart in and out, our wings briefly catch fire. And so eventually we crash, fixated on a dancing flame that will eventually go out. 21st century existence has altered life in countless ways. It's often said the technology we've created has advanced beyond our ability to consider its actual impacts, and that we'll have to wait years to see how all this new tech will shape our hearts and minds. Books and magazines often discuss communication and travel, medicine and education. But just this past week, I came across something I hadn't seen before. The family is changing too. Joshua Coleman is a psychologist and a senior fellow at the Council on Contemporary Families. And his research asks how the American family is being impacted by the changes of the 21st century. He's discovered that the family, which used to be negotiated along the lines of religion and obligations, inheritance, land, and the like, the family is now often negotiated around the drive to become an individual. So just think about this. Everybody under the same roof, mom and dad, sister and brother, grandma and grandpa, are living for themselves. Historically, our identity has been shaped by class, by religion and community. But over time, these have been replaced by personal growth and happiness. A couple generations ago, the family thought about stuff like where you went to church or who you married, who got to keep grandma's wedding band or grandpa's fishing boat, and we still fight about all that stuff, of course. But today's fights are often more psychological than they are material. Research shows that the main driver of our decisions is this, what will make me happy? And this desire to be happy shapes who we keep in and who we kick out of our lives. It's my happiness that matters most in the 21st century. Not what matters to mom or dad or sister or brother, not what matters to God or my fellow man, not even my sense of morality matters most but rather, what will make me happy? Dr. Coleman notes there are good and bad features of modern family life in which relations are often based more on ties of affection than on duty or obedience. Because of this, we are freed to surround ourselves with those who reflect our deepest values, and we feel empowered to call on loved ones to be more sensitive to our needs our emotions, and our aspirations. And this is a good thing, I'd say. Yet in less grave scenarios, Dr. Coleman goes on, our American love affair with the needs and rights of the individual conceals how much sorrow we create for those we leave behind. We may see cutting off family members as courageous rather than avoidant or selfish. And we can convince ourselves that it's better to go it alone than to do the work it takes to resolve conflict. And some problems may be irresolvable, he rightly admits. But he's also right to say there are relationships that do not need to be lost forever. 
And so I'll be the first to say that people should walk away from destructive relationships. But Dr. Coleman's point is worth repeating. Modern culture is fixated on personal happiness to the point that in some cases we are moving on from people even before we've tried to make things right. And this mode of living now extends beyond the family. So take religion, for example. Church membership is declining across the board, and yet the number of people who describe themselves as spiritual continues to go up and up. And so we've seen a new marketplace for religion where you can buy access to shamans and sweat lodges and spiritual retreats, and the only thing you have to give up is a couple of bucks. And this isn't entirely bad, but it's not entirely good either. It's good in that being exposed to world religions and spiritual practices expands our minds. But it's not so good in the sense that it resists what's really necessary for a meaningful religious life. Commitment and community. Real religion is practice with others, and we all know that others let us down. But it's that dogged pursuit of love and higher purpose with and among others that shows us in that magical way only church and community can that grace breaks in in the most surprising places. This tourist mentality has spilled into other areas. People leave jobs, leave marriages, leave town for good reason, but sometimes for bad ones too. All of this reminds me of an ancient question. If the main thing that guides us are our likes and dislikes, are we really free? St. Francis believed that our small self, which Freud would later call the ego, when that small self is in charge and we dart from flame to flame, what we're practicing isn't really freedom at all. What's really happening is we're slowly being imprisoned by our base desires. On some level, I want to resist this idea. But these past few years, with so much emotion in the news, and especially these last 10 or so COVID-infected months, when people on both sides of the political aisle, good, smart people, have let their emotions rather than their religion or rationality guide them, I have started to come around to the idea that our emotions are often liars. Just think about it. If you were religious or a good husband or wife or friend or parent or student or citizen or whatever, if you were any of those things only when you felt like it, you probably wouldn't be any of those things often. So on a personal note, I will admit that I never feel like cooking dinner. I never feel like shoveling the snow. I never feel like admitting when I'm wrong, and yet I do all of those things. Why, you ask? I certainly don't do them because they make me happy. I do them because my family needs to eat, because people need a safe place to walk, and because it's important to admit mistakes and to ask forgiveness. If St. Francis were alive today, he'd probably ask, am I really free if the main concern in life is my happiness? Are you free if what matters most is what feels good? 
And are you really set free by the belief that the world revolves around you? Every religion worth its salt teaches that none of us will experience true freedom until the well-being of others is considered equally. And the well-being of others is not adequately considered. Not here, not anywhere. When we aren't guided by a sense of commitment to our beloveds and our fellows, even when they disappoint us, we lose track of humankind's depth and the ever-growing needs of others that exist beyond our own. And when we hyper-focus on what we want and what feels good, we lose sight of the mystery we are to ourselves and to one another. And we lose sight that our lives are sacred and that our living is a shared journey. Deep down, I think that on some level, all of us gets this, at least a little bit. I think a lot of people are fed up with some aspects of modern living, but it's just so hard to stop because we're swimming in it. And so here's a suggestion. Find a new fishbowl. Let's admit that we are fed up with all those coping mechanisms Western culture has installed in us. Escapism in the form of drugs, booze, sexual promiscuity, consumerism, pettiness, self-righteousness, and so on. The late biblical scholar and preacher Eugene Peterson, he says that you have to get mad. You have to get mad at all the pain and hurt in the world before you can appreciate the grace at work in it. And my God, if you are not mad at the world, you need to wake up. But waking up is hard. It hurts. Paying attention is hard. It's hard because everywhere we look, there's pain. There's struggle and injustice, and often there's pain deep down in us. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a concept called yi tang chi, and it roughly translates to this, to become totally, completely exhausted. Pima Chodron says that this occurs after an experience of complete hopelessness, of completely giving up hope. Ironically, this sense of hopelessness in Buddhism is the beginning of the beginning. Because without giving up hope that there's somewhere better to be, that there's someone better to be, we will never relax with where we are or who we are. This beginning of the beginning starts in prayer and in meditation. It starts there because when we stop darting from flame to flame and sit long enough in silence, listening for that still, small voice, we discover that within us is a heart that suffers, a heart that calls out for connection, that welcomes service to others before happiness for self. And slowly over time, this act of prayer and meditation liberates us from the lie that we are separate from others. People who are transformed are rare. But you know them when you're around them because for them, freedom is love offered in the service to others. This running from flame to flame has to do with the fact that most of us are afraid. We're afraid of death of rejection, of old age, of things uncharted. We do this even though our faith and wise teachers from every generation have told us in a thousand different ways that fear is a part of being alive. 
Fear is a part of growing together with someone, and fear is a part of growing apart too. Being alive can be lonely. Being alive can make us doubt the existence of goodness and grace. And we can try, but we cannot and will not run from the fact of pain. But if we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, Pima writes, and the fear and doubt, then our experience becomes vivid. Things become clear when there is nowhere to escape. To stay, even when it's hard, can be an act of love. As St. Paul wrote to his struggling church in Corinth all those centuries ago, love never gives up. It cares more for others than for self. It doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love keeps going to the end. Over and again in St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you encounter the Greek word hypomone. And in English, that word means patient endurance. But that simple translation betrays the word's true meaning. What St. Paul's getting at is the capacity all of us have to hold out and bear up in the face of adversity, our ability to stay put and endure. Of course, sometimes we have to go away. And when we have to go away, God will go with us. But sometimes bravery means staying put, even when everyone else is leaving, darting from flame to flame. Dr. Coleman, that family researcher I told you about, he ends a recent essay of his with these words, we are all flawed. And it's this truth we should keep in mind whenever we stay or whenever we go. In a world filled with distraction, hell-bent on convincing us we are the center of the universe, let us commit ourselves to doing the opposite. Let us stay where we are for a change. Stand firm in the faith. Let us be quiet in the midst of the noise so we can listen for that small voice that guides our heart to connection with others, to those who need us, to those who suffer, those who, like us, have doubts and fear. Let us learn to be present to the life we're living. Let us learn to live in true freedom, true freedom which is love of self and love for others. Amen. Please join in singing our closing hymn, Spirit of Life.
Brandock Lovely once said, Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now keepers of the dream. The mission and ministries of this congregation are made possible by you, dream keepers. I kindly ask for you to consider what you are able to give and give it. You can stop by our website to figure out the best way for you to be a part of this church's mission and vision. I thank you in advance. Please join me in singing our doxology now. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that cast out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away.